All right, well, good morning, and let's go ahead and open up our Bibles now to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, you can find on page 992. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to follow along there. Well, it is uh, truly a joy to see and be led by the children of this church. Um, this is something that uh, Megan and Steve have been doing for a few years now, and uh, to see the, the growth in it, literally and figuratively, and um, not just for the kids, but for the church. And so here's the thing we have to be very clear on, what we just are experiencing this morning and what we do a couple times a year. This is not just giving the children an opportunity to lead the church, but hear me, it's to give our church an opportunity to be led by the children. When Jesus says in Mark chapter 10 about children, for to such belongs the kingdom of God, who does, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. One of the things that that means for us here at Grace Church is that it's not just that children are not a distraction in the corporate gathering of the church, but they can be an example for the church. Not just, not a distraction, but can be a strong example for the church in the gathering to lead and to lead well. And so thank you to Megan and Steve um, just for their ongoing commitment to not only disciple and shape our children week to week, but in this way to shape and disciple our church through our children. All right, well, we're going now up on to chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. We began this book back in January, so we're now starting the home stretch. And this is the first of two letters in the New Testament that this man named Paul, who started, planted a lot of churches throughout um, ancient Asia and Europe, and then discipled young men to take over those churches and to lead. And he had a young protege that he met when this young man was in his teens, discipled him, led him, commissioned him, partnered in gospel ministry with him, named Timothy. And in our Bible, we have two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy in the midst of that ongoing mission work. And for the much of the rest of this letter, Paul is going to talk house rules. House rules are instructions that apply to only a certain group or in a certain place. They're not universal rules that go for everywhere, everyone everywhere in the world. But he's talking house rules. Perhaps growing up, your parents had, or if you're a teenager, young adult still living with their parents, your parents still currently have house rules for your family. In this house, we do this. Our family does this. Sometimes those are explicitly laid out. Oftentimes, they're more caught than taught. They're just kind of known and understood over time. These rules do not apply to your friends' houses. They don't apply to your neighbors', neighbors houses or to other families these were for your house, for your family. Um, so as you start to maybe think back upon house rules you had growing up, no video games on weekdays. Maybe we stop and we pray together before meals in this house. We do our homework right after school ends. We talk to each other a certain way in this family. There are certain words or names that we don't call each other. We don't eat dinner in our bedrooms in front of the TV. We take turns taking the dog out for a walk. On Sundays that we're in town and we're healthy, we gather with our church, and on and on and on. These are house rules. It's likely there's some of those rules you liked more than others. There's some that you look back and go, that was ridiculous what we had to do in our house. And some of you teens are saying that right now. Some are easier to follow and accept. And at worst, in those moments, you think your parents are trying to make your life miserable. Like, they are waking up just trying to figure out how to make your life miserable on purpose. 
I can't stand the rules in this house. At best, and certainly more times than not, house rules aim to cultivate a certain culture in the home, a culture in the family that help you grow in wisdom, that hopefully you grow to appreciate more over time, that keep the family unified, to equip all the members of the family to be others-focused and not self selfish people, to be selfless, not selfish, right? You're not the only person in this house, house rules. Well, in this letter, Paul is equipping Timothy to instate and to cultivate some house rules in the church. Timothy's in the church at Ephesus, but these are timeless house rules that travel time and place in the local church so that the church can be a bastion of light to the city that they're in. These house rules in the church can keep a church community unified and where its members, at best, can grow as God-glorifying, others-focused, and selfless people. Uh, we've already saw pay, Paul say so much in chapter 3 of this letter. You don't have to turn there, but chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 says this. Paul writes to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, look, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. So after going through the first half of the letter, what we saw last week was that Paul, uh, by the spirit moving within him, paused to stop and encourage Timothy in his calling. Last week was a passage for the malcouraged. And now he will continue with his instruction and now give some practical house rules. And from this passage, we will see some timeless principles for us. What are house rules for gospel-shaped churches? What are house rules for gospel-shaped churches? We're going to see a few this morning. With that said, we're going to be covering uh, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, but we're going to begin with just reading verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. All right, we're going to stop there. We're going to see four house rules this morning. Four house rules that Paul gives Timothy, starting with number one. Number one will be the longest. House rule number one, we see the church as family. We see the church as family. There is a noticeable shift in Paul's tone and emphasis in chapter five than we've seen up to this point. Because he's going from telling Timothy, exhorting Timothy, how to address the leaders who were unhealthy to now how to address the members and how to equip the members on how they should address one another. So he's to teach and he's to model to the congregation what it looks like for people in the same church to relate to one another. And so the language is gentler, it's more patient. And the language he uses all throughout this passage is family language. Here's what he's affirming, right? House rule number one, the church family is a real family. In fact, in an eternal perspective, in an eternal perspective, it's actually a truer family than our actual families. And that's because everyone who's in Christ, when we say the phrase, in Christ, to be in Christ is to be someone who has placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That for all who place their faith in Jesus Christ, we now have the same Father. Uh, Jesus modeled and discipled his disciples this way when he taught them how to pray. When he says, this is how you pray, you begin like this. Our Father, both words are important. Father, God is our Father. And our, this is, this is corporate language, not my Father, 
our Father. You have a family in Christ. Paul writes then in Romans that all those in Christ have been adopted by the Spirit. All those in Christ are adopted. And he goes on to say that his Spirit testifies to our spirits, that we are sons and daughters of God. Now, this doesn't mean that becoming a Christian means that you need to deny your earthly family. In fact, we'll see in a little bit later in the passage that Paul will address, uh, direct, directly address earthly families. But it does mean that a Christian inherits a faith family in God's kingdom, which is represented in the local church. And it's not just figurative. Um, have you heard the phrase, have you heard this phrase, that blood is thicker than water? You ever hear that? It's a phrase that indicates that blood relatives, those you share a DNA with, have a stronger bond than any other relationship. And when push comes to shove, your family relationships surpass all other relationships. Blood is thicker than water. Well, the Bible says the spirit is thicker than blood. And to be adopted by the spirit makes you part of the people of God, which is to say the family of God. The spirit is thicker than blood. And we know this wasn't Paul's idea, but it was first heard from Jesus himself. Uh, there's a story in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is teaching, and as often was the case, there a crowd gathered. And there was a large crowd in this room, and so his disciples come up to Jesus as he's teaching, say, hey Jesus, your mom and your brothers, they're outside. And they want to see you. And Jesus says this in Mark 3, 33. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at all those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus wasn't saying he doesn't care about his biological family anymore. We know from the rest of the scriptures that he cared very much for his family. All the way up to on the cross, ensuring his mom would be cared for. But he is making the point that the people of God are true family. And so Paul picked up on that more than any other writer. In Paul's letters alone, there are more than 100 references to family language when talking about the church. Throughout all his letters in the New Testament, more than 100 references to talking about fellow believers as family. And so, house rule number one, since we are family, we treat each other like family. Like family in the way that God has designed it. And then he's going to give four dimensions of these house rules. How Timothy is to relate to older men, younger men, older women, and younger women. And so let's just go through them quickly. First, older men. He says, do not rebuke, but encourage them as you would a father. It's interesting because Timothy was just told by Paul in the verses that we saw last week to not be intimidated by your youth. Timothy, he was likely in his early 30s to mid-30s. He says, in your position in this church, do not be intimidated by your youth. What that implies is that there were probably older men and maybe older women in the church who were trying to intimidate him for his youth. Even so, Paul says, that's hard, I know. But do not rebuke them. Encourage them. It doesn't mean to never correct them. We know Timothy had to correct them, especially if they were teaching a false gospel, but to do so with humility and awareness of how you come across. Timothy, this is important. Age matters in communication. In God's design, human relations, age matters. It should impact the way not only what you say, but how you say it. And while this is true for all human relations on some level, 
It is especially built into the fabric of God's design that younger people ought to treat older people with respect. Do not rebuke, but encourage. God never endorses disrespect in the church. And I know that can be a vague term. How do you define disrespect? And this is important because we can easily justify our behavior and sometimes our harshness to ourselves saying, well, it is the right thing to do. But just know this, God never endorses disrespect, especially in the church. And Paul is saying this because he knows what Timothy's natural bent is because it's all of our natural bent to deal harshly with people if we want to lead and become across as a leader and I'm strong and I'm a strong leader and so I'm going to come across in a certain way that's going to show you I'm in charge. Or you want to feel heard and you feel like you're not being heard in certain situations and you need to get a point across. But harsh reactions, this is so key, harsh reactions and harsh language indicates insecurity and fear. When you speak harshly to someone, especially to someone who's older than you, you're not showing a sign of being strong or confident or tough. You're showing your cards that you feel insecure and you feel weak. And so now I need to speak harshly to make up for that. Speak with respect, Timothy, especially to those who are older than you and the older men in the church. Next he goes, younger men as brothers. And the indication here is to not look down on fellow believers just because they are younger. It's kind of the inverse of number one. Timothy knows this well. Again, he was on the receiving end of disrespect of people talking down to him because he was younger. So he said, don't do what they're doing to you, Timothy. Rather, treat younger men as equals, which is to say as brothers. If respect is key for older men, dignity is key for younger men. If respect is key for older men, then dignity is key for younger men. And the way to disciple a younger man is to give the dignity as you would a brother in Christ. Practically, like speak plainly to them. Don't speak down to them. Keeps going. Older women as mothers. Similar to older men, the call is to respect and to honor, especially those who are older than you. But I think further than that, the context of first century matters. In the first century, older women were likely not taken seriously by society, particularly younger men who were in leadership positions. Maybe even particularly pastors and elders like Timothy, who did not take seriously the older women in their congregation. So Paul's reminding Timothy, don't overlook the value that older women in the church play in shaping the culture of a church. And we've seen this bear out over 2,000 years up to present day. That in many churches, older women are the backbone of strength in how God has gifted them to strengthen the church. That God has used the giftings and strength of older women to strengthen the church. And Paul knows this firsthand. At the end of his long letter to the church in Rome, Paul is giving personal greetings. Remember in Romans chapter 16, and he's greeting several individuals by name who are in the church of Rome. Say hello to her, say hello to him, greet him, greet her. And then he says this in Romans 16, verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, look, who has been a mother to me as well. Paul knows that Timothy knows this firsthand from God's grace in Timothy's life with his own biological family. 
2 Timothy, the second letter, letter Paul will write to this young man, at the beginning in chapter 1, it says this, 2 Timothy 1.5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Just as a healthy family in God's design is one where both a mother and a father are shaping and involved in a children's life, so too a healthy church is one where both older men and older women are being deployed in their giftings and shaping the culture of a church in its discipleship. And then he gives you one more distinction. He says, younger women as sisters, with an added phrase, comma, in all purity. It's interesting here. Paul is doing multiple things in just a few words, which he tends to do. No words wasted. For one, Paul is upholding the primary male-female dynamic in the church as a brother-sister relationship. The primary dynamic between men and women in the church is a brother-sister relationship. And yet, in wisdom, he acknowledges with the added reminder the need for prudence and wisdom between younger men and younger women, whose relationship should be defined in purity. So, what's the way to uphold relational purity in the church amongst men and women? The way is for disciple men and women to see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a couple ways that can go wrong. First, you can disciple either uh, directly or indirectly that men and women should avoid each other because they're just threats of sexual sin. And so just avoid each other at all costs. The other way is to this be mindlessly uh, in a relationship, partnership with one another, where sexual temptation and sin can take root without any wisdom or prudence happening. You see, they're both wrong ways to teach men and women how to relate to each other in a local church. Either avoid each other or do so with no prudence that can now allow for a foothold of sexual temptation to take place. So what he's saying, he's saying, be close, but we're striving for family close. House rule number one, we treat the church as family. Younger men, where you love the younger women in this church in a way that a brother ought to love a sister, where they're willing to die for them and protect them and defend them and to cover them and allow them to flourish in any way that you're able. Uh, it's interesting just thinking about this. Uh, Rochelle and I have been given the responsibility to raise four children, two boys and two girls. I'm one of four boys. I'm still trying to figure out girls. <laughs> and as best as I know how, and I want to improve in this, I want to be able to say and look back in their upbringing, in their lives, to shape my two sons on how to best care for and love their sisters. For them to understand that there's a sibling relationship here, but they have in some sense in our society an added responsibility to love and honor and defend their sisters and to stand in the gap when that's not happening. Not in a tough guy way, right? Beat up every boy in the playground who messes with your sister, although I might teach that a little bit too, just a little bit. <laughs> All right, I want them to be tough guys. I'm not a tough guy. But in a way that I think shows real strength, raising them to, to, to see their sisters as women to be honored, to encourage in any way they can how to encourage their flourishing. And in the same way, in a church like Grace that is intergenerational and has plenty of relatively younger men and younger women, including much of our staff, 
We strive to cultivate a community where younger men see younger women primarily as sisters in Christ to love and honor in a way that treats them as gospel partners that are needed in this church and encouraging their flourishing in their ministry and their giftings, not as a potential temptation to avoid and not to mindlessly enter into a relationship that's unwise. Treat younger women as sisters in all purity. So all those specific reminders roll up to the first major point, this house rule. A healthy church is not just defined by its doctrinal statement of faith that it puts on its website. But it's defined by how that doctrine shapes a gospel culture within its community. And you can't tell that from a website. You can't tell that from a sermon or two listening on YouTube. I'm not against those things. But when you go to a church, it's not just doctrine and preaching. It's trying to get an understanding. Does this church feel like a family? We're not perfect. But are, are, are they welcoming of others to come and be part of this family? Are they eager to welcome in new people into the family? Do we strive to treat each other as fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters? Do they, does that mark the local church? Those are vital questions that we want to be asking in addition to the doctrinal questions. All right, that first house rule was the longest. Now more quickly, we got three more. And we're going to pick up the passage in verse 3 and read to verse 8. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. Verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. All right, house rule number two. We reflect God's heart for those in need. We reflect God's heart for those in need. Uh, of, of all the house rules Paul provides in this letter, he spends the most amount of time giving instruction to Timothy on how to best care for widows within the church in Ephesus. Which is why, in proportion to the attention Paul gives, we're going to spend two weeks on the topic of widows in the local church, taking it uh, through verse 8 today, and then next week we'll be picked up again in verses 9 through 16. Now, on one hand, you could say, well, Paul wrote more about widows because it was clearly an urgent and pressing issue in the church at Ephesus in that moment. It's possible that maybe Timothy specifically wrote to Paul saying, I need some guidance on how to handle the widow ministry here. It's a mess. So that could be true on one hand. But on the other hand, these verses and this long passage displays the greater picture of God's heart for those in need which is to be reflected by the church. And while widows are not the only group that is in need in a local church, God's care for widows is something you will see all across the Bible and as something that is close to his heart. In the Old Testament, God reveals himself as the protector of widows, like written into his character, written into law. Look at this, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Moses is instructing the people of Israel before they go into the promised land. He says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. 
Character of God, awesome picture of God, words that describe God. Then look what comes in the next verse flowing from this. He executes justice for who? The fatherless and the widow. And there are several stories all throughout the Old Testament that back this up, that illustrate this importance. And then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus, as the Son of God, has a heart for widows. He raised the widow's son back to life. He commended the faith of the persistent widow. He condemned the Pharisees who devoured widows' houses. He commended the faithful widows. He condemned those who worked against the widows. Jesus had a heart for widows. So God's concern for the widow is rooted in their vulnerable state in the ancient world. Because God's heart all throughout the Bible, then and now, is always slanted to those who are in need. Remember that. God's heart, and therefore the church's heart, is always slanted towards those who are in need. So here's what we affirm before we even look at the specific instructions for the widows in Ephesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ compels us, Grace Church, to care for those in need. It compels us, especially those within our midst and those whom God surrounds us with in surrounding communities. Here's why. What does the gospel say? What does the gospel say if it doesn't say that we were spiritual orphans? That we were all spiritual orphans, dead in our sin, without hope and without help, and God initiated himself towards us. Right? We say this all the time. We didn't find God. We're not in this room because we found God. He found us. He initiated himself toward us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile us to the Father by dying on the cross for our sin. Therefore, providing for us in his death so that by trusting in him, we sang it this morning, I will trust in my Savior, Jesus, that we will be forgiven now of that sin and adopted into the family of God where we are cared for forever. The gospel compels us. It's the core of what we proclaim, Christ crucified. And the invitation to join the family of God through repentance and faith. Friends, if you're here this morning, if you've not responded in faith to Jesus Christ, I know it's Mother's Day, maybe you're here because it's Mother's Day, and I applaud you for honoring your mother and deciding to come or maybe watch with her online. But you know that this invitation is before you. This is our greatest heart for you. To turn to Jesus. To put your trust in him. To repent of sin and join the family of God through faith. And for those in here who have believed by God's grace, again, that's the core of the gospel that now slants our heart to those in need. How could it not? How could you not have a true understanding of the gospel and not reflect this heart of God? Again, not perfectly, but, but increasingly. It's a house rule in this church. And every church that has Christ as its foundation with a desire to help those in need. Which leads to now house rule number three. To narrow it down. In this house, we are intentional with mercy ministry. In this house, we are intentional with mercy ministry. This situation in Ephesus is an example of a delicate topic that pastors and leaders in the church are always facing on multiple fronts at any given moment, regardless of its size. That the ministry of the local church presents delicate topics that has to be intentionally cared for in a delicate way. 
Because where the Bible often provides very specific and clear exhortations for many things, there are a whole bunch of things, more things, and examples and situations where you can't find a verse that tells you, Pastor, this is what you have to do in this situation. I admit, there's been times I've been sitting in my office and going, why can't there be a verse for this? I need a verse for this. I don't know what to do here. Which is why often in the local church, there is a need for wisdom. Wisdom baked in, drenched in biblical wisdom and spirit-led conviction and a collaboration of leaders, men and women in the church, to speak into these delicate situations that can actually give the leadership a confidence to handle delicate situations without fear. Well, in Ephesus, there's a problem with the widow ministry. There's a problem in how they're supporting widows. Uh, Again, the clear point is that the church ought to care for widows because God cares for widows. I think the church at least got that much. That much is clear. There's a verse for that. But what is unclear is how each church should go about it, considering that every church is different in terms of its context, in terms of how many people are there, in terms of its available resources to go around. And so in Ephesus, the church has something in place to care for widows, but they're doing it in a way that is causing a problem. And here's what seems to be happening. The most vulnerable widows are being overlooked, and they are now running out of resources to care for everybody. So Paul is going to give specific qualifications for widows to be enrolled into this care mercy ministry. The ones that who should receive the most financial support. Those who should be prioritized based on their situation. And here's how it's going to break down. We're going to see two major qualifications this week. And then the passage next week will provide some more. It gets even more nuanced, a little more complicated next week. But as we touch on them, let's remember in the back of our minds... First century Ephesus is different than 21st century Ridgewood. So it's not a one-to-one comparison, but there are timeless principles to extract while leaving space for the cultural contextualization of how a church should conduct its mercy ministry. Um, In biblical times, widows were considered those women whose husbands have died. Pretty simple definition. They may or may not have had children. Today, And I agree with many commentators and historians who think that the instructions on caring for widows is a little bit more expansive. Not only those husbands who are no longer alive, or women supporting women whose husbands are no longer alive, but women who are single mothers because their husbands have either abandoned their marriage through divorce or they were never married. That's not a category that really existed in first century Ephesus that does very much exist now. But the two qualifications for enrollment are pretty straightforward. Here they are. Number one, they are truly alone. Support them if they are truly alone. And then number two, support them if they are pursuing godliness. So let's look at those one at a time quickly. Paul says in verse four, if they have other family around, okay, they got children, they have grandchildren, let those people show their godliness to their own household, right here. Now he is talking about uh, direct families, biological families, Let their children and their grandchildren show their own godliness by caring for their mother or their grandmother. For this is pleasing to God. Right? Simply put, the family should adhere to God's design for families. And this is baked into the fifth commandment within the Ten Commandments, where it says, Honor your father and mother. That command extends beyond just the command to young children to say, Listen to mom and dad. 
It includes that, but it also expands to adult children caring for their elderly parents. There is a family responsibility here. If you can care for them, do so. Because God is pleased in that, first of all, so that she is cared for. But it also helps to free up the church's resources to care for those widows who don't have family. So there's a very practical reason behind this qualification. So positively, Paul says in verse 5 that it pleases God. And then to show the urgency of this, he also puts it negatively in a way that often only Paul can in verse 8. If anyone does not provide for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Right? Paul puts those lines in there just to make sure. Are you, are you sleeping on this? Are you falling asleep on this? Come back to me. If you're not doing this, it's serious. Because he's saying, listen, even non-Christians in the Roman Empire care for aging parents. That's not new. So to not do so exposes your lack of care for those in need, which, again, could expose that you don't have a true understanding of the gospel, which could believe, again, that maybe you're not a believer. This is why Paul repeats widows as truly widows a couple times in the passage. The ones who have no family to care for them should be prioritized. Okay, second reason why in this house rule number three. Paul writes clearly that a widow has a responsibility here as well. And that is to pursue godliness and to set her hope on God. It doesn't mean that there's a standard of maturity. It doesn't mean to give them a theological exam and if they pass and give them care. But here's what I think is being implied here, is that it seems that within the widow ministry, within Ephesus, there are widows who are using the church for money. They heard, hey, they got money for widows. If I go and be part of that church. And so they're taking the money, they're taking the resources, but they have no heart for Christ. They have no desire to pursue Christ in their life. They know they get money if they're linked with this church. And so Paul is warning against that, that there should be a sense of devotion in her life. And then he gives one example of the way you can tell she is devoted is in her prayer life. The devotion will be exposed in her prayer life. That she continues, Paul writes, in supplications and prayers night and day, as opposed to living only for herself. And this is good for all of us, not just widows, but he says if you're just living for yourself, if this world's all about you and just about you, you're going to be dead even while you live. Another Paul line that makes you stand up a little bit. If this life is all about you, you're dead even while you're alive. As I read this second qualification, uh, two things came to mind. First, in the Bible, Luke chapter 2, there's a woman named Anna. We actually preached on Anna in our Advent series this past year. After Jesus is born, um, his parents bring him to the temple in Jerusalem. And Luke spotlights this woman. He's the only one who talks about this widow named Anna. She's 84 years old. And we see this in Luke 2, verse 37. Who did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I wonder if Paul was thinking about Anna when he wrote this. And then, secondly, what this made me think of hit a little more closer to home. Grace Church, many of you know, three weeks ago today, a widow in our congregation, Ruth K. Rudd, at the age of 92, went home to be with the Lord. I think she was thrilled to go meet with the Lord. For the rest of us, it was a little quicker than we wanted. But that night, I was talking on the phone with Rich and his wife, Ruth, and uh, Rich's sister, Marjorie, 
And his sister said this to me. She said, Pastor, you need to know this. This is the night she passed away. I need you to tell you this. My mom prayed specifically for you and for this church every single day. She loved this church. And she told me in clear terms, Pastor, you lost a major prayer warrior in your church today. And that simultaneously encouraged me and grieved me. Encouraged at how just devoted she was right to the end in prayer for this church. And it grieved me to some end of, of, of losing that in a sense. And I don't want to get into all the theological discourse of maybe she's still praying for us or maybe not, but I do think there is a challenge put out to this church. Who's going to step in the gap? Ruth fought her fight well. She finished well, and she went on to glory. Who's going to step in the gap and pray for this church? Night and day. We need it. House rule number three, be intentional with mercy ministry. And that leads now finally to now house rule number four. This is the briefest house rule, but it could be the most important because it reveals the why behind every other house rule. Here's now house rule number four. We are God's ambassadors. In this church, we are God's ambassadors in the world. Here we don't want to lose sight of why all these house rules are needed. Again, growing up at home, your parents had a lot of house rules. You understand why some of them happened as you got older. You still don't understand why a lot of them took place. But here, we are told the why. Why are house rules in the local church important? Because we are God's ambassadors. And these house rules and the way we live our lives directly impact real people's lives. And they directly impact the church's real witness. Okay, it's worthwhile to put deep thought in organizational structure around helping those in need. It is worth the church's time to do that. It's worth the church's money to do that. Otherwise, as was happening in Ephesus, resources will be wasted and those in greatest need will be overlooked. And that hurts people. When a church fails to organizationally cover those in need, people get hurt. Widows are image bearers. Their lives are truly impacted by the decisions that these church leaders are making. I imagine that there's many in this room who can attest to times in your life or somebody in your family or somebody close to you that has been greatly helped by the local church. That they, when they were in need, they were cared for, loved, covered. And you are a witness to the beauty and impact that can have on real lives. And yet, conversely, and it grieves me to say that maybe there's even more on this next list of people in this room who can attest to the ugliness and the negative impact of seeing firsthand churches that fail to care for those in need. Whether that was you, somebody in your family, or you had a front row seat to seeing how the church not only failed those in need, but were complicit in putting people in need by the way they treated them. We know house rule number four is God's ambassadors. If you truly care for someone's soul, you will also display care for their body. And then, to close up, the care for widows impacts the church's witness in the world. House rule number four, we are God's ambassadors in this world. James puts it most bluntly in his epistle in chapter one. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Look, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. At Grace Church, 
our long-term vision, if the Lord will allow us, is to focus on spiritual formation for the purposes of mercy and multiplication. Spiritual formation for the purposes of mercy and multiplication. And it's vital to see how linked those two things are. A church will not multiply its ministry in a healthy way without mercy ministry. Because before the world listens to what the church has to say about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the world will watch how the gospel of Jesus Christ shapes the way we live, and specifically how it shapes the way we care for those in need. So these are four house rules. And house rule number four is the reason for having them at all to begin with. We are God's ambassadors, representing the living God to those who are hurting and searching. So this is what can set us apart, church. That when we live by the power of the Spirit and we live these house rules out, God will get the glory and the world will get Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness towards us and your word. We thank you how... You lay out principles and and rules for us that are not meant to bind us or restrict us, but are meant to allow us to flourish in glorifying your name, allow us to flourish in showing the world Jesus and who you really are, Lord, that you're not an angry God who is um, impossible to please, but you are a God who's been made manifest in your son, Jesus Christ, who is strong and kind. And Father, give us the courage to see those two links together. And give us the added courage to live it out the best way we can by the power of your spirit in us. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.